Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome along. Thanks for listening. This is Writer's Routine. And sharing her daily work diary today is Val McDermott, one of the world's most successful crime writers. Her novels have been translated into 40 languages. She sold over 15 million copies worldwide. She's written across many different series. She's been a, her work has been adapted for the telly. And her writing process has changed quite a lot over the years. So you can hear how her approach to getting ideas and plotting them and then getting them down keeps on growing. And also, uh, we talk about what it's like writing for a huge global audience. I mean, does that change the way that she tells stories? And we also learn about how much she plans her characters, knowing that she'll most likely be writing about them for many books to come. In the olden days, um, you've got a character like Miss Marple. And, you know, she doesn't basically change... As, as the years go by, it doesn't matter what order you read the books in, Miss Marple is essentially the same. Her arthritis gets a bit worse in the later books, but really not in a significant way that, that changes anything. There's no self-consciousness there. There's never a moment where she goes, these terrible things that have happened all around me, why is it that all my friends are dead? You know, there's never a moment like that. There's no self-consciousness like that. It's always, you know, uh, Tommy Smith and the, the, the Jill of Pickled Shrimps, um, not uh, what is it about me that attracts these dreadful events. But with, I think with modern series characters, readers expect, and indeed for writers to maintain their interest, you have to develop the character. You have to uh, allow the character to absorb the things that have happened to them and to change as a result. There is all that, and obviously loads more. Stick around, it's this week's writer's routine. Yes, hello, welcome along. This is Writer's Routine. It's the show where we take a look inside the working day of an author to try and learn some of the scheduling secrets of their success. My name's Dan Simpson, and if we're talking success, there aren't many writers around at the moment with more of that than our guest today, Val McDermott. We'll get really into it with her about that in just a sec. First, let me quickly say, in the next few months, we do have some honestly incredible authors on the show. I mean, starting today, what an example, Val McDermott. We've also got a Hay Festival award-winning literary fiction author on. Uh, we've got rom-com writers on the show. We've got an Australian sensation who is actually taking over the world with his work. And Jeffrey Deaver is even coming on. So you need to be a part of this. Make sure that you subscribe to Writer's Routine wherever you get your podcasts from, and that'll make sure the shows automatically download for you. 
And if that place where you get your podcast from, by the way, is over on Apple, do us a favour, find Writer's Routine on there and leave us a review. That way, everyone that needs the help of our writers can get the help of our writers. And the writer that we've got giving help today... It's some pull for us, I'll be honest. Uh, Val McDermott. I've been trying to get Val on the show pretty much the whole time that this has been going. So it's only taken me, what, like two years? That's because she's hugely busy. Uh, She publishes a book a year. She's also writing for TV, for radio, and you can hear how all that fits into her day and her year during the chat. She's written about Lindsay Gordon, the journalist, uh, private investigator, Kate Brannigan, psychologist Tony Hill, Carol Jordan, Karen Peary too. Uh, And we talk about why she feels the need to invent all of these new characters to tell different stories and to solve strange cases for her in a little bit. We also learn if having these characters being adapted for telly at all changes the way that she views and thinks and then writes about them and we'll talk about her newest novel Broken Ground. We'll also share some of your writing tips that you've sent to me at writersroutine.com in just a bit so stay there for that. First let's dive into it with Val McDermid starting as always with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Um, I see in front of me a computer screen, um, a bowl of pencils, um, lots of bits of paper, um, and uh, that's about it. I mean, you can't really see much of the desk because of the paper. What room are you writing in? I have an office uh, which is book-lined and looks out onto the garden. Uh, And So this is in your house. Uh, What if I were to look at the walls? Uh, have you got much creati- much creativity, many inspiring pictures on there, things that mean Not dearly to you? Not so much, because the walls are lined with bookshelves. There's a big um, seascape above the fireplace, which is opposite my desk, because my desk sits in the middle of the room. Uh, and I have uh, a reproduction print on the wall that I've had in my office since 1987, um, which is a painting called The Healing of a Lunatic Boy by a Scottish artist called Stephen Conroy. And, and does that... So it, so it stayed in there for over 20 years now? Yeah. Um, well, I've got, I've got a new version of it because the Scottish National Gallery started doing canvas prints of all their collection. So I replaced my slightly faded uh, framed paper print with a canvas print recently. But it's the same painting, yeah. Uh, when you look at the painting, how does it, how does it make you feel? What does it evoke? Mysteriousness. Um, it's, it's a painting that, uh, that doesn't reveal itself particularly. Uh, it, it, looks, it asks questions of you. And I've been looking at this on and off for 30-odd years and I still don't really know what's going on in it. If I were to walk into your study, your office now, midway through writing a book, would I see any clues around me as to the story that you're telling? There might be some. I mean, it would depend if some of the books I had been referring to were still lying around or if they'd been back on shelves, but probably not much. There'd be, um, there'd be quite a lot of... Um, bits of paper with, with odd sentences on them, you know, like, Paula needs to visit Tony now. Um, and I, I find the, the pads you get in hotel rooms are the perfect size for just, like, a couple of sentences to describe what the next scene or the next chapter is to remind myself. So I'll have, like, you know, the next four or five uh, bits, sections, I'll know what they are, but that's all. So the, as, as I go through, they get crossed through and discarded. Are you a serial pilferer of hotel room pads then absolutely yes <laughs> i've got a big pile of them in my drawer um so the show is called writer's routine val uh, talk to me through yours if you can the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed 
on a day when you are sat down to write? How does it look? Um, I get up, I get in the shower, um, I get dressed, I go upstairs, I have a cup of coffee, I make my porridge, I have a second cup of coffee, I eat my porridge, um, I'll look at the morning papers online, um, I'll probably read some of whatever it is I'm reading at the time, and I'll go upstairs to my office about 10 o'clock, and the first thing I do is check my emails, uh, look at Twitter, uh, and then read through what I did the day before, and I might go further back than just what I did the day before, depending on, <coughs> excuse me, depending on uh, where I am up to in the book. Because I like to, every now and again, I'll print out a chunk of like the last fifty, sixty pages and read it through to see what the continuity is like, to make sure I haven't left the story strand alone, alone for too long, or I haven't refer, haven't failed to refer to a character for too long. So just keeping it all coherent, keeping it all moving. And then I start writing seldom before about 11 o'clock. Uh, I don't think I've ever written a decent sentence before 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, I just My brain just doesn't start working. Um, and I, I, I tend to write in 20-minute bursts. Um, so I'll write for 20 minutes, and then I'll do something else. So it might be deal with my email. It might be go and make another cup of coffee. It might be go to the post office. It might be go to the shop and get another bottle of milk. Um, something of that sort. I have a standing desk as well in my office, so I try to get up and go at the standing desk and I'll play a sort of, you know, stupid little computer game for 20 minutes and then go back to work. So that's how the day unfolds in these 20-minute chunks and then a break and 20-minute chunks. And, you know, at some point I'll have lunch um, and it's, and I'll usually usually finish about somewhere about, about 7 o'clock and either I'll cook the tea or I'll go and annoy my partner while she's cooking the tea. And then we eat together and um, probably watch some TV. Or if I'm going really well, I'll go back and work. Maybe till midnight or one in the morning if it's if it's going well and I feel like I've got more to say. So you're, you're certainly putting the hours in. The, the, the short space of time that, you know, these 20-minute chunks, mm. with all due respect, that is, it is quite a short amount of time to sit there and bash out some words. How are you using those 20 minutes as effectively as they could be. I mean, you're, you're so many books down now. Have you learned how to, you know, write the story that you want to write first time? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it goes down, um, you know, sort of like bang, 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 and then I've done enough. I can't. I've done enough concentrating. I need to put my mind somewhere else. Park the next bit while I'm. I'm the rest of my mind is dealing with something else. So the wheels at the back of my head, if you like, the subconscious wheels, can get turning and get the next bit lined up. So I sit down and I'm ready to roll. Some days it's really, I mean, some days, some days I'm lucky if it's a thousand words, especially when it's towards the beginning of the book. And some days I might do 5,000 words. And what's your edit like? Um, well, because I, I edit as I go. Um, I, I revise, as I said, in the morning before I start. Um, and then I, I get to the end of the first draft, I do a read-through edit, and then off it goes. When I speak to authors much like yourself, who are incredibly prolific and have been successful over quite a time, I always like to tr try and figure out how the writing routine has changed along the way. So if I can try and draw you back to your first book, this would have been Report for Murder? Yeah. Talk to me about how that got itself down. What was your writing routine like back then? Well, nobody knows what process works for them when they're writing their first book. You just shamble along and you, you kind of... 
uh, assimilate things that you've heard other writers say or that you've read other writers saying um, and, and think you, you know how you're supposed to do it. I mean, I wrote my first book in fountain pen on fool's cap paper because I thought that's what you did. Um, and I, I made lots of corrections as I went along uh, in different coloured inks. Um, and then I, I typed it up and then I made a lot more corrections, um, some of them in ink, some of them on typing paper, some of them sellotaped in place, some of them written on the back of the typescript. And then I, then I typed it all up again um, and I made more corrections. And uh, the final uh, time I, I, I got it typed up by a friend of mine um, who had better secretarial skills than me and made fewer typing errors than I did. And so that was how I, I, I did it the first time. By the second book, I had discovered the word processor. I mean, we're talking late 1980s here. There wasn't much in the way of computer technology, but because I worked in journalism and we had, um, we had computer technology by then, I understood the advantages of doing that. So I, I bought myself an Amstrad PCW and used that until I got my first PC, which was probably about four years later. Let me take you back to the first one. I, I, you would have had a full-time job at this point? Yeah, I wrote on Monday afternoons. Oh, so brilliant. So how long then did it take you to get out that, I mean, a 300-odd page first novel when you're only allowing yourself to write half of one day a week? Um, I, I, I wrote the first draft of Report for Murder probably in, over the space of about two years, and then there was about another year or so revising it and rewriting it and, and um, getting it into a shape that I thought I could send out to people. And then it was about a year and a half in the, in the editorial process at the Women's Press. You've mentioned the advent of the word processor for you. Mm. Uh, if, if you can, can you try and... This might be quite hard to unpick. To try and take me through the key moments of how your storytelling process has changed throughout your 30-odd novels. Uh, because obviously there would have come a point where you're no longer working full-time. You are a writer. This is what you do. How has that changed for you? Well, I think by the time I got to the end of the first novel, I realised that... Uh, I had wasted a lot of time by not planning at all. I mean, I kind of knew broadly what the story was. I knew who was going to be dead and, and how they got dead and, and, and who killed them. But um, I didn't know any of the ins and outs. I didn't really know who the characters were. And I, I wasted a lot of time, wrote myself into blind alleys. And I thought by the time I came to the second book, I really should plan it out a bit better. So by the second book, I, I, I wrote about a page of A4 of, of an outline. And that helped quite a lot, but it still wasn't enough. So by the time I got to the third novel, um, I was planning it out really carefully. Um, I, I used to use file cards, and I'd have a file card for every section or every chapter. Um, and when I started writing the Kate Brannigan novels, because they are multi-stranded plots, uh, I started writing them on, uh, started planning them out on different coloured file cards. Sort of a pile of blue ones and a pile of yellow ones and a pile of pink ones. It was a bit like Countdown, you know, I'll have two from the blue pile and one from the pink pile, Carol, you know, until it made a sort of narrative sense in my head. And I would start at the beginning and I would work my way through the plot to the end. Um, and that worked very well for me. It felt, um, it felt like having a roadmap. You know, some people say, oh, if I plotted it out like that, I, wouldn't, I would be too bored to write it. But I, I, I found quite the opposite. I found it a kind of safety net. Um, it was like I knew I knew I had that um, road to follow, so I knew if I took a diversion along the way, which I quite often did because I thought of a better way of doing something or a more interesting way of getting to a particular point in the story, but I knew where I was always coming back to on the story spine. So it was it was actually it was like a security blanket almost. You know, I knew I couldn't get lost, 
Uh, and so I could move forward concentrating on dialogue, concentrating on character, um, and, and move through to the end of the story. And that worked for me for a long time. It worked for about, I, I guess, about 14, 15 novels. And then it stopped working. And it literally just stopped dead. I was planning out a particular book, and I, I planned out the first first third, um, maybe a bit more than the first third, and I just couldn't pin it down. It, it was like, you know when you're a kid at school and you've got a blob of mercury and you have sort of chasing it around the lab bench? And it was like that. Every time I tried to pin it down, it would kind of skitter off and, and, and disappear from my grasp. And I was really struggling with it. Um, and I, eventually I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just write as far as I've got and then I'll know what to do because... When I've been writing things on file cards, there was always a file card somewhere in the pile that says, something has to happen here, but I don't know what it is yet, but I'll know when I get there. And that had always worked and, and, and been effective, I suppose. Um, so I, I, I settled off, set off writing the book with the file cards, and I got to the point where the cards ran out and I didn't know what to do next. Uh, I was really struggling and stuck. I knew what the end of the book was. I knew who was committing these crimes and why they were committing them and who the victims were, but I couldn't figure out how to write my way through the middle section of the plot at all, uh, and I was quite panicky. Uh, it wasn't like it wasn't. It was kind of weird. It wasn't a writer's block because I was writing other things, the other kind of things that that go on all the time when you're you're writing a novel. You know, short stories, the odd bit of journalism, the odd essay or whatever. Um, but I could not pin down this this novel, and I was really starting to panic. You know, and every now and again, my editor would ring up for a cosy little chat, and I'd go, "Yes, I'm writing. Everything's fine," which was a lie because it wasn't. Um, and eventually, I I had a few a couple of weeks to go to my deadline, and and I was in a state of complete and utter panic, and I ran away. Um, I went off to a place that I I go and stay in Italy, um, which is uh, two miles up a dirt road. Um, at the time, there was no phone, no radio, no TV, no internet, no nothing, um, and uh, I just said, I'm going to I'm going to make myself write every morning. So I got up every morning, and I sat down with my laptop, and I worked until half past seven at night, and I had a shower, and I had one of Mama Rosa's home cooked dinners and a bottle of red wine, and I went to bed and got up in the morning and did it all over again, and uh, I somehow, somehow. F- forced my way through to the end of the book. I wrote 65,000 words in nine days, which is insane. Uh, and at the end of it, I, I couldn't even speak in sentences. You know, the last day uh, I was there, I'd, I thought, I'll go to Siena and have a nice wander around, nice cup of coffee sitting um, in La Placia de Senoria. And I got up that morning and I just, I, I, I just went and sat by the swimming pool with my mouth open all day. I couldn't even read. Um, and I sent this this first draft off to my editor. Um, I didn't even have time for a proper read through. And uh, I got back and 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 she called me up and said, oh, "This is the best first draft you ever handed in." And I was thinking, "Oh God, no! Is this what it's going to be like from now on?" You know, <laughs> I thought I could just go back to the way it was before, but it just didn't work for me like that anymore. So now uh, I write in a much more free form. Um, I kind of know the broad sweep of the story. I know the arc of the story. Um, I I know who gets dead basically I know who did it and I know why they did it Uh, and I know maybe three or four of the crucial turning points of the story along the way I know whose book it is Uh, (laughs) and, 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 and that's that's about it and then I start writing
I spend time with the characters before I start writing. Um, if you're working in a series character, if you're in a series novel, you've got a nexus of characters already there. Um, and so you kind of know what their limitations are, you know what their strengths are. So to some degree that dictates the way the story is told. Um, you know, Tony Hill isn't suddenly going to become an action hero and leap tall buildings as one mighty bound. Um, so you know what, what they can and can't do. And that, that, as I say, that kind of steers the way you tell the story. Um, but if it's, if it's a different story that you want to tell then, and, you're, and you're working with characters from scratch, then for me it's about spending quite a lot of time before I even, start, even think about starting to sit and write the book, thinking about who are these people and why are they doing the things that they do? Why would you do that? Why would that be something that makes sense to you? So that's, that, that can be months, years before I'm ready to start the book. Well, how about this then? So with, with Kate Brannigan, for instance, and you've got this idea for a character, most of your stories are series-based, so you know that she's going to crop up time and time again. How much of her do you know the first time that you sit down to write one of her stories? Or are you hoping, maybe I might know 60% of her, but there's always scope for her to change, for her to develop, because I'm going to come back to her again and again. Yeah, I mean, I think with Kate Brannigan, I knew right from the start I was writing a series. So I I seeded certain things that I knew I could use as the series developed. Um, you know, like her, her relationship with her boyfriend, her best friend, some of the people that she knows um, as, as colleagues. So I, I, I set certain things up that I knew I could work with going forward. But there were things about her that I didn't know and that I didn't have to know at that point. Uh, and I think... With series characters, these days, people expect a series character to develop, for them to carry the weight of what, what they've done, what's happened to them. You know, uh, you, in the olden days, um, you've got a character like Miss Marple, and, you know, she doesn't basically change as, as the years go by. It doesn't matter what order you read the books in, Miss Marple is essentially the same. Her arthritis gets a bit worse in the later books, but really not in a significant way that, that changes anything. There's no self-consciousness there. There's never a moment where she goes, these terrible things that have happened all around me, why is it that all my friends are dead? <laughs> you know, there's never a moment like that. There's no self-consciousness like that. It's always, you know, uh, Tommy Smith and the, the, the Jill of Pickled Shrimps, um, not uh, what is it about me that attracts these dreadful events. But with, I think with modern series characters, uh, readers expect, and indeed for writers to maintain their interest, you have to develop the character. They, you have to uh, allow the character to absorb the things that have happened to them and to change as a so result. So at the beginning of a series, you can't really know what you're going to do to them as the series progresses. So to that extent, you're, you're writing in the dark at the beginning. You're not, you don't know at the beginning which way you're going to take them. But most the other most of my series have not um, really started with the intention of being series. And I, when I wrote The Mermaid Singing, I didn't intend to start a series with Tony Hill and Carol Jordan. Um, but as I wrote the book, it became clear to me that the nature of their professional lives and the nature of their personalities meant there were a lot more stories that I could tell in their world. And so it developed the way it did. And if I'd thought of the beginning it was going to be a series I would probably have made some different decisions to be honest. You mentioned the intentions that you have when you set out to write your books what what you initially know I'd like to unpack that a little more if we can so let's talk about the most recent published work that you had which would have been Broken Ground. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the very first moment that the idea for that story came into your head. Well it 
I was in Cromarty in the Scottish Highlands uh, for the... They have a crime weekend in April, a sort of small festival up there, and I was up there for that. And we'd gone for a walk on the Saturday morning out to the point uh, on the Bay of Nig. Uh, and it was a beautiful morning, and I remembered that I had read a sentence in a biography of Josephine Tay recently. Um, and I, I remember that this sentence had reminded me of something... This is stupid. It reminded me of something that I knew I knew, but I'd forgotten I knew. Um, and that was a, that in the Second World War, the Scottish Highlands, north of the Great Glen, was a restricted area. Uh, if you wanted to go to that area, you had to have a military pass. And if you lived there, you couldn't go more than 20 miles from your home without written permission from the military authorities. Um, and mostly we didn't know, people didn't know, and we didn't know until relatively recently, what was going on there during the war, because all these things were sort of, papers were all locked away. But we now know that um, there was lots of things going on in the Highlands. The, the commandos were being trained there. The SOE operatives were being trained there in all the skills they needed to operate behind enemy lines. The submarine fleet was being refuelled and supplied at Loch Hugh. The Russian convoys were setting off from Loch Hugh to go across the North Atlantic. So all this stuff was going on that we, the rest of us knew nothing about at the time, or indeed for quite a long time afterwards. So I thought, uh, I thought there must be a, there must be a story lurking in there somewhere. There must be something I can use. Um, I need to find out more about this. And so I was just saying this to my partner. I said, "Let's go back to town, and they've got a bookshop there. I'm going to ask if they've got any books. They must have some books about." the area during the Second World War. So we, we trundled back uh, and I went to the bookshop and I said to the bookseller, have you got any books about this area in the Second World War? And she said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking, oh, great, just great. Um, and uh, because, you know, once I get an idea in my head, I really want to pursue it and I couldn't and that was really frustrating. Um, but she said, but she said, but a funny thing happened a couple of weeks ago. This couple came in and then she told me this story uh, about this, this couple who were heading to Shetland um, because the woman's father, during the, the, the Second World War, had been stationed there. And at the end of the war, uh, the troops had been told to destroy everything that wasn't being shipped back to the mainland, to, so to burn it or bury it. Uh, and her father and his pal had just taken delivery of two brand-new American motorbikes. Uh, and they couldn't bear to destroy these, these bikes, so they'd crated them up and buried them. And they'd drawn a map, and they'd intended to go back and get them, but they never got round to it. And so she and her husband decided they were going to go and find the bikes. And they'd gone the summer before and hadn't been able to find them and hadn't been able to make sense of the map, but they were on their way back because one of the locals had said, I think I might know where this is. So they were on their way back. And I thought, that's... And, and you know, my, my partner said, I could see the wheels turning inside your head. I could see something sparking. And I thought, that's a great story. I thought, you know, this, this is I've got, I've got, to, I've got to have this. I've got to use this, and so that was the, the starting point, really. Um, I knew I couldn't set it on Shetland because that's Anne Cleve's territory, you know, and you know she's pretty tough, you know. Um, uh, but I know Wester Ross much better anyway, and I thought I could do some interesting things with what was going on there during the war anyway. So I thought I'd set it there, um, and that was where I, I started from. That's where the story leapt into life. I knew that they were going to find, the, I knew somebody was going to find these bikes, and I also knew that. There was going to be a body, but then very quickly I knew there was going to be a body, but it wasn't going to be a body from 1944. And and sorry to ask now the next easy but logical question. As someone who I would assume has got a majority of the storytelling process, the practicalities of it anyway, down, what happens next for you? So you've got this idea, you know that I want to write something about this place in Scotland. Um, what do you do? Well, I think about whose body it might be and why it might be there. Um, 
why would you dig up these bikes but then leave them there? Uh, and why is there a dead body with them? So I started thinking about what it might be as an addition to the bikes that made that an, a site of interest. Um, so you're thinking about what that, what might that be? And so I think I figured out what I thought that was going to be. So that, that involved me going and doing a little bit more research. Um, nothing very major, but just thinking about what, which units uh, liberated which parts of Europe and when. Um, so I could tie that into what I wanted to happen later on in the story. Um, and uh, I had to think about uh, who this dead body was going to be. Uh, and... It just so happened, as in the way of these things, because nothing is ever wasted, that uh, the year before I had, uh, for reasons that are still not entirely clear to me, been asked to be the chieftain of the Invercarran Highland Games, um, which meant I spent the day uh, at Invercarran uh, marching around the field in front of a pipe band to start the games and, and judging various things and presenting various things. And uh, in the course of the day, I, I, I spoke to a lot of people about... Uh, what happens at the Highland Games and, and the lives of the people who, who who go from games to games competing in the, the heavy athletic events and, and the, the music competitions and things. And from there I thought I can make I can use this I can use this to make this other half of the plot work quite well. It gives me a body, it gives me the right kind of person to put in the place. And I thought, oh why and then I then I thought that I want to I mean obviously one of the things is um and the crime novel has very much become the novel of, of how we live now. This is where you go to find out how we live now, how we lived then. Um, and so uh, I wanted to bring in sort of the contemporary concerns of what this, the person, the perpetrator behind all of this, what, what they were involved with. Um, and I wanted to, you know, wanted to bring some moral dimensions into this as well. Um, because I think at the heart of these these novels, the Karen Perry novels, uh, uh, there is often a, a moral element to her investigation of cold cases, why people um, committed the particular crimes they did. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Right, we'll get more from Val in just a sec. First, let's get some of your writing tips on the show. If you've got something that has really helped the way that you tell your stories, maybe a little trick that helps you get your fingers on the keyboard, something that greases the sides and eases your writing block, let me know what it is right now over at writersroutine.com. It'll be really helpful to then share it on the show. Uh, Carly Greenwood has done that. Thank you, Carly. Uh, She says that distractions are the pain. Yeah, I know. It always comes to distractions, doesn't it? Uh, She says, put your, your phone on airplane mode. Freedom on your internet. Just turn off the world around you. Dive into the one that you have created in your story. Uh, and also, Kate Brunning slightly says the opposite to that. She says, thanks for this, Kate. Uh, sit outside around people in the world for a while. If you can't get any ideas, just being near strange, different, unique characters that will help you write about your own. Which makes complete sense, Kate. You know, I often think that all the inspiration that we need for our stories is already out there. It's just by finding the people who you need to write about and kind of changing it to something that works for what you want to tell. Uh, Thanks for the tips. If you've got something that has really helped the way that you tell your stories, uh, you can fire it over to the contact page over on our website. Hello, my name's CL Taylor and I'm the author of Sleep, which is out on the 21st of March 2019. My writing tip is, if you're stuck for a surname, go on Facebook Look at your friends' pages and their friends' pages and choose someone's surname that appeals. Now you can hear more tips from Callie in her full episode. It's over on our website and you can leave me your tricks, tips and hints and I'll read them out next week over at writersroutine.com. Let's get back into it then with Val McDermid, our esteemed, fantastic guest this week. Her novels have been translated into 40 languages. She sold over 15 million of them. And her new one, uh, Broken Ground, it's out right now and it's way over her 40th book. I'm not sure of the actual number, but there have been a lot. Now, in this part, we talk about second guessing the readers and why you shouldn't try. Also writing for telly, and we pick things up with more about her characters. Even though she's got these thick, plot-heavy, structured books, it's always about the characters. You're never going to believe and care about a crime story if you don't ultimately have any respect or even believe that the characters can exist. And Val has so many characters that I was wondering how does she know which story that she's creating belongs to which of her characters? How does she sort that out? And how does she let her ideas breathe? For me, stories stay in the head a long time before they're ready to be written, so I kind of know what the next Karen Perry book is going to be about. At least I think I do. I might have forgotten about it. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of know what the next Karen Perry is going to be, um, but it's not ready to be written yet. Um, ideas come, they start to form, they take shape. I tell myself the story of this, and then I go like, that's a Tony and Carol, or this is a whole new thing. I'm going to have to think of a different way of diff- different set of people to do this. Um or I've got half of a Karen Piri idea, how do I make it a whole idea? You know, I've got the beginning idea. I've got, I mean, the next Karen Piri, I've got the great beginnings of an idea, but I'm not sure how to form it yet. We've talked about the writing routine of a day. Mm. For a minute, can we just talk about the writing routine of a story? So mm. like the yearly calendar. So say you get an idea today mm. for a new, yeah, Karen Piri story. Structurally, timeline-wise... How does it work? When would you start to write it? When would you hand your first draft in? When would you see that being published? When it's ready. I mean, I write write a book every year. I write a book, I write between January and April. That's when the books get written. 
So every January so far, I've always had a story ready to roll. But I don't sit and think, next year it's got to be a Karen Piri, I better have an idea. I mean, because I'm thinking about the next Karen Piri. You know, I was thinking about that six months ago. Um, but but only because I'd had an idea that worked for Karen. So um, ideas uh, start to take shape, stories start to tell themselves to me, and they're not always, they, they don't always uh, take shape quickly. Uh, sometimes you have a great... I remember with one book, Trick of the Dark, for example, um, I had a brilliant idea, uh, and it happened over the course of a weekend. Uh, I, I, I was in my old college at Oxford for a conference, and there was a wedding going on in the grounds on the Saturday afternoon, and someone had mentioned this earlier, and I was sitting down by the river because I was bored with the conference, and um, I saw the wedding party arrive, a beautiful bride, you know, a very handsome groom, and I recognised the mother of the bride as someone who taught me when I was an undergraduate. Uh, and therefore, I understood that the bride was someone I had babysat for <laughs> many years ago. Um, and that's a nice little story. And for, for most people, that would be the end of it. But because my mind works the way it does, I was thinking, OK, so what kind of backstory might there be between two people when this sort of coincidence would set a whole lot of wheels turning? Um, what might the story hiding in the darkness be and so you know i mean i by the end of the day i knew that the bridegroom had to be dead by bedtime <laughs> uh, no one is no one that you meet is ever safe <laughs> no 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 absolutely not no um and by the end of the weekend i knew the broad shape of the story i knew i knew the drivers for the story i knew who the main characters were but it took me forever to figure out structurally how to tell that story it took me about 12 years i wrote the first 10, 15,000 words of that book, I think five times, and chucked it away every time because I couldn't figure out the structure. And eventually the, the, the tumblers just clicked into place and uh, something happened that made sense of it all and, and I was able to write the book. We're at the end of April, sorry, we're at the start oh. of April now. Oh. You say you write from January to April. Do you already know what, what you're going to start writing year. January 2020? Yeah. yeah. You already know? Yeah. Have you got... I don't have the details. What I don't. I don't know the fine details, but I know broadly speaking what the story is and how 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 it works. What the engine is. Well, let's talk about that engine for a second. There, you're as as I said, over thirty books down now. Um, is there a for want of a better word? Yeah, this is a more interesting question now since you've told me that y you struggled with the structure for a story for twelve years. Mm. Is there a almost like a, a storytelling machine for you in place because you are. You have told so many stories that are of a similar vein now. You know that when you've got an idea and you write the story, this will happen in it, 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 without using, this is an awful word, don't mean it like this. Is there a certain storytelling formula? I don't, I don't know that there is. I mean, structurally, my stories have been very different. Um, you know, there are, some certain, there are some that have a certain kind of pattern, but there are others that don't. I mean, when I wrote the book The Wire and the Blood, uh, you know, several reviewers said, this turns all the, 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 the rules of, of a crime novel on its head, this breaks all the rules. And when I sat down to write that, I wasn't thinking, aha, I'm going to very cleverly break all the rules. I just thought, how am I going to tell this story? So what, what, how it works, I suppose, with me is I have an idea for a story, um, and, and, and then I, I have to figure out how that story can be told. And it's not always straightforward. So 
with a darker domain, for example, it's a cold case story. It's set against the miners' strike of 1984, and Karen Piri is conducting an investigation. And when she goes to interview people uh, about the events of 1984, you, what you don't get is the interview of Karen talking to the person. What you get is the scene from 1984 that the person is talking about. Does that make sense to you? It makes perfect sense. Right. So the book pr- progresses, but all these these flashback scenes are not in sequence. So the reader has to work quite hard to figure out how things piece together because you're getting it piecemeal. So it jumps about in time and it jumps about in terms of who we're talking about. And that was the only way I could, could find to tell that story. You mentioned Wire in the Blood. Yeah. Um, you were still writing that while that was on telly. I was still writing the series while the... Yeah. But how, how much does... Um, the, the portrayal of your character on the TV uh, affects your portrayal of the character on a page? Not very much, I think, really. Um, Tony Hill's pretty clear in my head from the get-go. I mean, there are one or two um, things that I, I thought were quite useful to pick up from the television series. Because um, a lot of what happens in the books a lot of, uh, happens inside Tony's head. And it doesn't make very good television to have somebody sitting in an armchair going, hmm... Uh, it's it's a bit dull so um, I I, would develop a different sort of grammar of the storytelling on screen so we got the whiteboard that he would write things on and explain things or not to people um, and talking to himself and so I thought that those are both quite useful techniques I could use within the book but um, I had a very, as I said, I had a pretty clear idea of him, and I had a very clear idea of Carol Jordan. And it quite, it, in a funny kind of way, it helped that she left after three series, and they brought in a different character altogether. Because um, so nothing was really interfering with my my Carol Jordan, in that way. But I I think you have to just if, if you give things up for adaptation, you have to just turn your back on it in a sense, and say that's the telly, these are the books, and what happens on the screen really shouldn't affect the books. To be honest, I don't think about readers when I'm writing. Um, all When I'm writing, uh, my principal concern is to write the story I want to tell the way I want to tell it. Um, I, I suppose I'm writing the book I would want to read in that sense. So I, I don't sit and think, oh, this is going to upset people, or oh, perhaps I should tone this down a bit because it might upset someone, or someone someone might not like this approach, or this might not this might um, alienate some readers, or this might attract readers in a particular way. And I've never I've never sat down and thought, what's working in the marketplace? Should I should I write something that's commercially whatever? Um, I write the books I want to write, and that's all I've ever done. I think if you start second guessing what readers want to read then you're probably you know, hog-tying yourself and censoring yourself and not writing from the heart anymore. Let's think about the readers just one more time then. What I'll do- think about them afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> because often they have, they have really interesting insights into what I've written. Sometimes they see things that I didn't even know I was writing. What do you expect a reader expects of a Val McDermott story? I think they expect to be entertained. I think they expect to be challenged. Uh, and I think they expect to close the book with something to think about. There you go, very simply put. Yeah. Well, last question then. I, I've mentioned, and sorry to say again, but you know, a, a hugely prolific author over, what, 30 years now. Well, what storytelling secrets have you learned along the way? What have you picked up that helps you tell your story in the best possible way? Patience. Don't push it. Um, give a story time to breathe. In your head and on the page, really. Um, you know, when, when I start a book, it, it's, uh, it's been in my head for quite a long time, usually. 
Uh, and when I start to write, when I start the writing process, I feel my way into a book quite slowly. Um, you know, the first month, January, if I write 50 pages, I'm going really well. Um, you know, so quite often it's maybe a thousand pages, a thousand words a day, maybe even less than that when I'm beginning with, because it, it's kind of feeling my way into the mood of the book, into the mood of the story. And also, as I say, when you get an idea, to be patient, not to feel I've got to run with this right away. And I think it's, it's about being excited about what you're writing. You always should write what's in your heart, in your head. Always write the book that excites you, not the book that you think your publisher wants you to write. I think people often get stuck in the trap of thinking that uh, because the publisher wants them another one of the same, that's what they have to do. And sometimes you just have to turn around and say, no, that's not the book I can write next. I can't do that next. And, you know, sometimes it pisses your publishers off. But sometimes they're delighted in the end because they've got a much better book than they would have had otherwise. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Val for coming on for making time. It's been a long time (laughs) trying to get her on the show. And even though it's taken two years, I think it was worth it. I really appreciate her and her uh, publishers and publicity people uh, making the time wriggling free at Spare Hour. So I really, really thank them for that. Uh, You can find out loads more about her work right now over at writersroutine.com. And while you're there, I'd love you to send over your writing tip fire it to the contact page on the website then I can share it on the show and we can help other writers, we can all kind of come together as the nice writing community that we are I know, very sweet also let me know about it on Twitter we're at writerspod there, it's, we're on Instagram as well, writersroutine on the Insta, next week we have Namwali Serpel on the show who's just written this fantastic literary fiction history of the nation of Zambia follows loads of generations living in that country and the different types of challenges that they faced. It's amazing and she's such a student of telling stories. Uh, You want to come back for that, I promise. It's a fantastic chat. Make sure you're here next week on Writer's Routine. I'll see you then. Bye! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.